I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Henry Wade Rogers, professor of psychology and professor of education and social policy at Northwestern University. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. The often confounding behavior and temperament of the 45th president of the United States is regularly in the media spotlight. Dan P. McAdams, a renowned psychologist who pioneered the study of lives, examines the central personality traits, personal values, and motives, and the interpersonal and cultural factors that together have shaped Trump's psychological makeup. The book's central thesis is that Donald Trump is the episodic man who defies psychological expectations regarding what it means to be a human being. With an emphasis on scientific personality research rather than political rhetoric, he shows that Trump's utter lack of an inner life story is truly exceptional. Uh, Dan McAdams has been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, uh, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. Welcome to the show, Dan. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting topic. This is uh, this is <laughs> this is the topic of the day. So I guess the first question uh, is is related to the fact that uh, the central theme of the book, uh, or thesis as it's been described, um, regarding uh, Trump as the episodic man who defies psychological expectations. Uh, can we start with that? What does that mean? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So I, I think, you know, we've been doing research on this for 30 years, and just about everybody out there is walking around, every adult has a story in his or her mind about how they came to be and what their life is about. And, they, you know, it's the past and the future, and you situate yourself in, the, in an ongoing narrative. Everybody that is except Mr. Trump. Uh, and Mr. Trump is unique, I think, in this regard. He doesn't live in time the way you and I do. He doesn't have a story in his mind about how he is changing over time and what his life's about. Instead, he lives in the moment. And so the idea of the episodic man is that each episode of his life is a single anecdote. It's a single by itself moment. And he fights to win that moment, each moment, one after another after another, and sort of like a boxer in the ring fighting for three minutes, and then you, the bell rings, and you sit down for a minute, and you get up, and you do it again over and over and over. But the difference with the boxer is this doesn't add up to a fight. It's separate little fights, one after another, and there's no underlying story or narrative in his head about where his life's going. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. So isn't that one of the worst characteristics that the president should have <laughs> because don't it's, you it's, all, got, yeah. it, it's bad and it's good. Okay. So the good part of it for him, at least is that it makes him extraordinarily authentic in the minds of his supporters. Mr. Trump, he may hide his taxes. He may, you know, deceive in that regard, but when you see him in the moment and when he's interacting with the press or a foreign leader or whatever, whoever it is, he's right there. Now, all of him, there's nothing being hidden. And I think his supporters pick this up. There is something truly authentic about Mr. Trump. What you see is what you get. So that's the upside. The downside is significant. I mean, because we expect a leader to be able to develop, for example, long-term plans and strategies. We expect a leader 
to have an understanding of America, past, present, and future. And, you know, Mr. Trump, he doesn't have that. I mean, he's fighting in the moment to win. And so when you have a daunting challenge, for example, the coronavirus challenge now, which would challenge any president, you can't, you need to develop a long-term plan. You need to have patience. You need to say, well, we're going to do this, and then that might lead to this, and then this strategy. You need to bring in experts to develop that long-term strategy, and, and that's not his forte. I mean, Mr. Trump is uniquely unqualified to lead the country during this particular long-term problem. So given that, and, and, and given that kind of a personality, I guess, how, do you, how does that fit into, do we have any chance of bringing in the pandemic like to, to resolve I don't know if resolve isn't exactly the right word, but how are we going to fare for the next year or two? Or, well, we don't know what's going to happen in the election, but let's say right now with uh, with President Trump, with this kind of a personality, being in the moment, not having a long-term plan, changing his point of view depending on where he is and who he's talking to. Um, right. We've, well, we've lived with this for three years, and it hasn't been a humongous problem until – we face, you know, the current situation starting in March of 2020. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very bleak right now. I mean, I, you know, Trump is, is so unusual in this regard. I mean, pretty much everybody else who's ever been president, you know, they, they all have quirks and weirdnesses. There's a lot of psychopathology. There's a lot of narcissism. There's some downright craziness in our presidents. But when they step into the Oval Office and they assume the role, they typically kind of know what to do, or they, they involve themselves in the institutions. They have a long-term history, and they basically play the role of president. And, you know, whether you like them or hate them, they do the job according to the norms of the job. But Mr. Trump doesn't do that, right? He's, he plays one role, which is the role of Donald Trump, and he plays it as president. And so this becomes, you know, a real problem when you're trying to deal with uh, something long-term like the virus. I'm very discouraged by our country's standing at the moment with respect to uh, fighting this uh, task. And I I just don't see how we're going to uh, overcome it uh, until, of course, there's there's, um, either a cure or or a vaccine. What about the people who surround him? I don't mean uh, the population, uh, you know, but I mean the people who are uh, who are in office with him. You know, the say some of the Republican senators or those people who are in his cabinet. Um, how do they fit into the picture, and how do they support this well, kind of a personality? Yeah, I mean, there's been tremendous turnover in his staff, uh, more than you know any other president in recent memory. Uh, so it's, he's tough to work with, partly because I think you just don't know what's going to happen when he wakes up, because whatever fight is ready for that episode, he's going to take it on. And so he's unpredictable from one day to the next. Uh, so, but when you started out, I mean, he had a cabinet that was, uh, you know, kind of the expected kind of cabinet a, a Republican president would have uh, surrounding him with John Mattis and so forth and others. Uh, and slowly over time, he sort of purified it. So that basically right now he has people who surround him that basically, you know, participate with him in this, in this you know, semi-delusional world about, you know, fighting the battle every day. So he doesn't have a lot of pushback from the people in his inner circle. 
You would expect, however, for there to be pushback from the Senate. Even, you know, his Republican colleagues, you would expect there to be some. And now and again, Mitch McConnell will disagree with him, or Ben Sass from Nebraska will criticize the president one way or another. But there's not, you know, for the most part, they kind of go along. And now this may change if Mr. Trump's poll ratings continue to dip, as they have over the past few months. Uh, but it's, I think it's been discouraging for many, regardless of where you are, in the political spectrum, you know, we expect to have three independent branches of government that sort of duke it out and play off against each other. And Mr. Trump has pretty much neutralized the House, uh, the, the uh, legislative branch. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're, we don't, we're not operating with a full democracy at the moment. Do you think Donald Trump is a, a cruel person? I mean, does he lack empathy? Is he so narcissistic that he doesn't have empathy for uh, those people that he's governing? Yes. Uh, and it, it, it's sort of Trump psychology 101. And so when I started my work on Trump, I thought, well, okay, that's just, it's too easy. Everybody calls him a narcissist. Everybody says he's cruel and malignant. He has no empathy. But surely he's got some, right? So let's look for it. Let's try to find incidents here and there. Let, you know, maybe there's something behind the role he plays, where we see a softer side. And you just don't see it. You don't see it in his personal life. You don't see it behind closed doors. I mean, every once in a while, you'll get a little story from somebody and they'll say, well, this was an endearing moment. And it might be, say, Trump handed out a $100 bill to a janitor one day. Okay, well, that's not empathy. That's, I mean, come on. So, yeah, it, it, this, is, this is something that, again, you don't see in public office hardly ever. I mean, we expect... The, the president, we expect our elected officials to have some, uh, you know, feel for the people and have a sense of what other people are feeling, or at least to be able to fake it a little bit. Mr. Trump can't even fake it. I mean, so his aides, like Hope Hicks and so forth, they'll write down instructions when people come into the Oval Office. They'll say, okay, this is a, this is a high school. These are people in a high school in Florida. They've just gone through a, a terrible thing. Ask them about themselves. Show some concern. Smile. He's got these things written down on a note card. He tries to do it. He can't do it. It's like I'm, I can try to dunk a basketball. You know, I love to play basketball. I've never been able to do that. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it now at my age. I'm never going to dunk a basketball for the rest of my life. Donald Trump is not going to show empathy. It's just not part of his makeup. I always felt in the beginning when he was first elected that the press, and I wanted to ask you that, how responsible you think the press is for a lot of what's happening. They were always kind of trying to make him something that he wasn't. As you say, you're never going to be a basketball player. Neither am I at five feet tall. And it's like, so, but they wanted, you know, he, he, maybe he'll be presidential. Maybe, and this went on for maybe not so much now, but in the beginning of his presidency and always used to bother me. Like, can't you see who he really is? I mean, why are you trying to pretend that he's something that he's not? And they sort of continue to try to perpetuate that. Um, that that was my reaction to the press. Yeah, I think that's still true to a certain extent. I mean, I, I, but it's not just the press. I, mean, I think we expect him to be like other human beings, which is to say we expect him to kind of live his life in time, to learn from mistakes, to have inner ideas and conflicts, to make decisions for the long term, to 
respect the norms of the office, since every other president, from George Washington to Barack Obama, respected the norms of the office, and he just doesn't do it. So it does, it freaks the press out. It freaks other people out, too. And then he, he just does these egregious things. Okay, so like on day one of the presidency, the, the, the original response after he gave the inauguration it was the biggest crowd in the history of inauguration crowds. Well, no, it wasn't. I mean, you have air photographs showing that, you know, it was a decent-sized crowd, but not the biggest ever. And so this is just a little lie. And so, okay, no big deal. But it drove the press crazy. Said, look, Mr. Trump, look at the pictures. You're wrong. You're wrong. I mean, it's factually wrong. And yet he stuck with it. And so, yeah, we don't expect this. This is not how most human beings act. But Donald Trump's been doing this, my God, since second grade. I mean, since when he punched out his second grade music teacher because he he didn't like what the guy said in class. Donald Trump walks into a situation and transforms the moment dramatically. He's extraordinarily antagonistic and aggressive. He'll say something, whatever it is, on the first day of his presidency or the first day in his second grade class, and it transforms the environment. Everybody gets up in arms, and they get antagonistic. And then he looks around and he goes, whoa, they're out to get me. And the fact is, yes, they are. But you started it. (laughs) You brought it to the game. You came in guns blazing. So what do you expect? In a rare but, moment of introspect, introspection, 40 years ago, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, being interviewed by a People magazine reporter, was asked, you know, what's your philosophy of life? And he said, here it is in 20 words. Man is the most vicious of all animals, and life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat. So, like, how do you come up with that kind of philosophy, that kind of really negative philosophy of life? Well, it reflects his experience. That is what it's like to be Donald Trump. He is always fighting battles. People are vicious, the press included. But why? He brings it on. That's the part he doesn't quite get, I think. And so it is the world he's lived in all his life. It's made him who he is. But in a sense, he's created it. And uh, it continues to perpetuate you know, what we see. But doesn't he thrive on that? He thrives on the attention, whether it's positive or negative, as long as he's the center of attention? He does indeed. I mean, chaos is his best friend. When things are crazy and we look to a leader, we, you know, we look to have him kind of rise above and so forth. You know, Mr. Trump never tires of himself. And this, is, this also goes back to the idea of the episodic man, because I'm thinking about what would it be like to be him, okay? I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat narcissistic. Most academics are. I want people to buy my book. I want people to hear me and so forth. I like to be in the limelight. I love to do interviews like this. But could I do them 24 hours a day, every day of my life? If I woke up every day and saw my picture on a building or my name here and there, I don't know. I think it would wear me out after a while. I might want a vacation. I mean, it's never going to happen to me, of course, or any of us for that matter. But I think after a while, it just wears you down. Nobody, the self included, is that interesting, that smart, that dynamic to capture your attention day in and day out. You know, we've evolved to be social creatures to look to other people and not just ourselves. But not Donald Trump. He never tires of it. And this is where the episodic idea comes in. It's as if he's in that old movie Memento, where the guy woke up every day and he had no memory from the past. He would start every day over. 
It's not quite that extreme. Donald Trump has memory, but it's as if he doesn't. He starts every day over, and, oh, my God, there's my face again, and, oh, it's beautiful, and I'm never going to get tired of this, and he never does because it's constantly refreshed day in and day out. So whether it's positive attention or negative attention, he thrives on it. Uh, most narcissistic people do, but he more so because it's new to him every day as the episodic man. So, so as the episodic man, this kind of, it, it doesn't his behavior doesn't wear him down or the response he gets from the way he behaves. It, it actually peps him up. I mean, it's sort of an adrenaline for him. He wakes up every day, and yeah, every day is something new for him. It, it's um, what about Mary Trump's book? I wanted to ask you, how does that fit into, let's say, what you uh, your book? Mary Trump uh, brings in, uh, she has special insight and credibility that, that nobody else who's written about Mr. Trump has because she's in the inner circle. She, she knows some of the principal players. Uh, now, some of her accounts are hearsay in that they're stories that she heard in her family. I mean, she didn't witness certain things about Donald Trump growing up because, of course, she wasn't there. But she heard stuff, and she has experiences with Mr. Trump and the family, and, and especially some very negative experiences with Fred Trump, who was Donald Trump's father, the patriarch of the family. So I think she has a unique insight in some of this. And then, of course, she's trained as a clinical psychologist. So I think her book is very valuable. Um, It's different, though, than my perspective. And I don't mean to be critical in this regard. I think we just have different agendas. I mean, Mary Trump's intent here is to bring Donald Trump down. And I think she's quite effective in that regard. I mean, she she is very effective in like getting us to understand what it feels like to be him in terms of some of his weaknesses, in terms of some of his defensiveness and so on and that kind of thing. She doesn't do anything with his strengths. And so, I mean, if we really followed her formula to the end, it would be amazing to any of us that Donald Trump wasn't dead by now or, or, or had been a complete and abject failure. Clearly, he has some strengths that she doesn't acknowledge. Uh, it's not just that his father set him up and he was able to flourish because of that. I mean, Fred Trump's been dead for 20 years. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. So he has flourished in many ways. But I think Mary Trump shows tremendous courage in this book and a lot of insight uh, to get us inside the family. She puts much more on Fred, on the father, than I would. I, I mean, I think Fred was a... Uh, a, a really mean guy, and I'm, I'm sure that his uh, effort, you know, that he was instrumental in part in shaping Donald Trump's aggressiveness and his antagonism and so forth. That was the kind of son Fred Trump always wanted. He wanted a killer and a king. Those were his words. And Donald fit the bill. The other kids didn't, but Donald did because of his innate aggressiveness and so forth. So Fred Trump reinforced it and helped it develop. That is the narcissism, that is the aggressiveness, the lack of empathy. But he's not fully responsible. I think there are other factors as well. But having said that, yeah, I think Mary Trump's book is valuable in giving us some some inside look. Well, let's talk in terms of your book and, and what we've been discussing. What do you, what does all of this mean? I'd like your for the say the upcoming presidential election in terms of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Well, I haven't done a, a book on Mr. Biden. I've read a lot about him. Uh, what I try to do in my book is 
you know, let's just try to understand this one human being, this very unusual case, this strange case of Donald J. Trump, uh, and, and see if psychological science can shed some light on who he is and how he came to be. The book doesn't make any, like, political statements. It doesn't make any projections. It leaves it up to people to, to you know, decide what they want to do in the election. One thing I studiously avoided in the book was engaging in any kind of, like, uh, pathologizing. So, you know, this is uh, kind of what a number of clinical psychologists have done. They want to find a diagnosis for Donald Trump. They'll say he suffers from this mental disorder or that mental disorder. Maybe he has the narcissistic personality disorder. Maybe he's a sociopath. You know, there's all these clinical terms. I'm not qualified to use them. I don't find them to be useful. Moreover, he's stranger than all that. He's much stranger in ways that are compelling and positive and in ways that are extremely negative. So I'm not trying to kind of like say he's not fit for office because he has a psychiatric illness or anything like that. I want to go there. Many presidents have had psychiatric problems. Abraham Lincoln, for crying out loud, probably suffered from clinical depression, but his melancholia opened him up and gave him more empathy for the suffering of others. So those kind of things, I think, don't disqualify a president. I think we have to judge a presidential candidate as we judge human beings in general, in terms of character, temperament, moral issues, where they stand on the issues, policy things. And, you know, that stuff, that, that information is out there. I, I cast a little bit more light on the character part, on the temperament part, uh, but I'm not, I'm not uh, pushing a particular political agenda in the book. Yeah. So yours is sort of, as I said, I guess in the intro, personality, scientific personality research is what, what it's all about. Uh, not necessarily. Yeah, it's kind make, of an application. Yeah. It's an application of the, you know, the best theories and research findings we have, most of which derive from studies of groups of people, you know, but you know, personality psychology, my home field, we're supposed to be able to use these ideas to understand the individual case. Well, here we go. Here's an individual case, arguably the most prominent man on the planet at the moment. Let's try to understand him. This is a real weird one. Uh, and uh, so there's, there's a lot in the book about, the, you know, just how different he is from expectations, even expectations that psychologists have about people that they don't like very much. Trump, he's way stranger than a lot of that. In writing the book, like, as you, well, first of all, and this maybe should have been the first question, it's going to be probably the last question, we have four minutes left, but uh, why did you decide to write the book uh, initially? The project was forced on me, I have to say, four years ago. <laughs> okay. when I got Someone made you do it. You sound like Donald Trump, it wasn't your fault, you had to do it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I take no responsibility for this book. That's right. No, uh, the, the Atlantic Magazine uh, asked me to do a profile on him back in February of 2016 when, they, when he was in the Republican primaries. At that time, I knew nothing about Donald Trump, hardly at all. I didn't even know he'd had three wives. I mixed up Ivana and Ivanka. I mean, I was nowhere. So I did a deep dive on Trump over the next few months and put together an article that appeared in June of 2016. It was well received. And then I thought, well, that's the end of it because, you know, he's not going to win the election. Come on. But, you know, history proved me wrong and many other people as well. And I uh, kind of was like a moth to the flame and uh, came back to it uh, and spent, uh, spent really three years working on the project. Uh, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great a puzzle for me. I mean, uh, the deeper I got into him, 
the more questions were raised. Uh, when I did the article four years ago, I didn't have this idea of the episodic man. I assumed he was like most other people. He's got a story in his mind about who he is and so forth. But the more I looked, the more sources I read and so forth, it started, you started to see that there's kind of a vacuum there. Uh, and it's, it's like a black hole or a void around which all these other features of his personality revolve. So in the middle, where you expect there to be an inner story of the self, there's nothing. But going around it are narcissism, aggressiveness, his relationships with women. They're all like these satellites going around the void in the middle, uh, kind of vortex. And in the same sense, I think we are all in a vortex as well. He's this void in the middle, and we're kind of going around him and around and around. Uh, it's not a very kind of positive image, but it's one I keep coming back to. It's a black hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so we, the strange case of Donald J. Trump, a psychological reckoning. I, you know, go out, buy it. You can buy it on Amazon bookstores everywhere. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Dan P. McAdams from Northwestern University. So, uh, Dan, websites we can go to um, to get more information about the book, about you, and about your work. Sure. Yeah. So uh, all you need to do is Google me, Dan P. McAdams at Northwestern University, and I have a website there that has all my research on it and so forth. So that's one way to go. Uh, The book is widely available, as you suggest, on Amazon. Oxford University Press uh, published it. It's in audible versions and e-books and so forth. Uh, that, that's, that's mainly it. I'm not on Twitter. I don't do social media very much. So in that regard, I'm a little bit retro. I kind of just, uh, old fashioned in the sense of rely on the things that I write. Right. Retro or not, go out and buy the book. Thank you so much for being on the show. Great conversation. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 